Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. In the towns and cities all across Canada, each generation sadly seems to suffer a tragedy that casts a permanent shadow across their childhood. It's a phenomenon that often presents itself to onlookers in the form of a news article covering a group of teenagers killed in a motor vehicle accident, a house fire, a suicide, or some other similar event. To those of us without connection to those who lost their lives, it's simply the days or the week's tragedy, perhaps a wake-up call, but we can move on, awaiting the next tragedy to be affected by. But when the lightning strikes someone close to you, it can change everything. Those of us unfortunate enough to have had a classmate one day and an empty desk the next will know what I'm talking about. The perspective you gain is almost indescribable. When it happens to a member of your group, a few things might happen. Shock, dismay, sadness, that wake-up call. But ultimately, it's something and someone you'll never forget. In this episode, tonight, we'll hear one such story and how someone close to those involved is dealing with it. We'll be joined by Ken Jessam, a man who back in the summer of 1970 lost two of his childhood friends under strange circumstances. The event has been haunting him and many others who grew up alongside him ever since. But it wasn't only the tragic deaths that had been troubling Ken. It was the puzzling circumstances that led to them and the fact that no one seemed to be looking into it. Now, nearly 50 years later, Ken Jessam vows to do all he can to share the story of the three Cape Breton boys on the tracks. Uh, my name is Ken Jessam. I was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia. I was raised in uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. A couple of years ago, I did a, a monthly column for an online publication. Uh, they, Cape Breton Spectator, mostly the cultural scene. And, but then my last article, I decided I would write about the train incident because it always always bothered me, like everybody in of that age who knew the boys, we were all kind of haunted by it. And I wanted to write about that. So anyway, I wrote an article for the Cape Breton Spectator. And uh, about a year later, I wrote two more articles on it, following up, which I intended to do, and I put them online at Go Cape Breton. And now I'm I'm following up. I got a, well, two more articles to write uh, and try to uh, look at the possibilities of what might have really happened there. I'm, I'm going to be uh, talking to people. I have a couple of leads to talk to people who might have seen the seen the boys and spoken with them. And uh, that's my next step. What is your connection to the people who, to these three young men who, who died back in 1970? I knew two of them. Two of them were my friends. Kenny Novak, who was my age, summer of 70, 15. We were both 15, and I knew Kenny. He was from Sydney River, a town next to ours. And so for some reason, he came down that year he started. 
hanging out with our group, going to our dance halls and, you know, hanging around the street corners of Bowling Alley and so on. And I didn't know him well, and it was uh, like, uh, hey, Kenny, do you have a smoke? You know, we would bum smoke. I, it's my memory. We were always bumming smokes off each other back in that time. <laughs> Terry Bird, I knew much better. He was from my neighborhood, Whitney Pier in Sydney. He hung out in our large, kind of amorphous group, four, ages 14 to 20. I was 15, he was 20, so we were not really close. And uh, But we would chat sometime. I liked him. Everybody liked him, actually. Now the, you mentioned you knew two of the guys personally. Mm -hmm. the, the third that you didn't know, over the years, what did you learn about him? What was his name? How old was he? David Burroughs was uh, the third. He was 17 years old. And he was also from, from Sydney River, like uh, Kenny Novak. I haven't learned much about David. I talked to uh, a couple people. I was talking to uh, a woman today who was a couple years younger than went to school, uh, you know, a couple years behind them. And she's, you know, she was saying she'd be. You know, nice guy. He seemed like, and and he was a good fellow. And that's all I know about David Burroughs. Now, the the story of these three three young men will eventually lead us to a, a rural area on the American side of the Maine New Brunswick border. So, what I'd like to know is how they ended up from. How did the story get them there? So maybe just walk through mm -hmm. what you've been able to put together about their activities leading up to their to their deaths. Kenny Novak, um, Terry Bird, and another uh, Whitney Pierre boy, Sydney boy, Alan Crowley decided to go camping at Inganish Campgrounds. And so I, I think they might have hitchhiked up or they got to drive up there with a the family member. But Alan uh, Crowley is back in Sydney and I was spe uh, speaking with Alan and I talked to him about it. I was talking to him today and he, he said, you know, it was the usual thing. You first time camping and you have those adventures, you know, put, putting up the tent and not getting it right and having cold beans for breakfast. And also having, you know, meeting other young people and swimming and just having a great time uh, in the summer, you know, at that age. And so they were up there and David Burroughs came along and, hey, you know, hey guys and everything. And they start hanging out together. And as Alan remembers it, David Burroughs said, Let's 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 go to the states. Let's hitchhike uh, to the states. And he's not sure why. Alan said. Alan said, "I can't do that. I have to go back home. I got to see my girlfriend and everything. And I just can't. You know, I'm 16 years old. I can't go down to the states." And they said, "Fine. You know, you go back. But we're going to go." And so Alan isn't sure. Maybe it was a Tuesday or Wednesday. He went back to Sydney, and they set out around there for uh, to hitchhike down to the United States. Now, piecing it together, Thursday evening, they crossed the border. The local police in Aroostook, where this happened, the Sheriff's Department of Aroostook, so the Sheriff, Daryl Crandall, he was speaking with the press all the time about it. He said they crossed the border illegally. I don't know if he knows. I don't, that's, that's not clear how they, but they crossed the border, the three of them. And uh, we're coming up to around midnight, they were hitchhiking. And the report, now I'm going by the press, you know, what was reported, it's the closest thing I have to solid truth. A driver picked them up and he said that, you know, they're ordinary kids, ordinary people, they looked a little tired, um, and uh, drove them along Interstate 95. 
they were close to Holton, uh, Maine, about five miles from Holton. And he let them off about two miles from where they ended up on the train track. The next thing we know really is from the train drivers or the, the train engineer's point of view. Yes. And you wrote about this in your article. So maybe describe the way he recounted his experience, I believe to the press is where you borrowed from. Yes, that's right. He, he, this, is in the, this was in the newspaper accounts. Uh, of them. And there wasn't a lot in the newspapers, I'll tell you, but what was in there was fact after fact, quotation marks and facts, never questioned, but what was reported. So, and the engineer... Um, he he said they were driving along as they do every morning in that area at 7 a.m. and he was making a sharp turn. He came out of the sharp turn going 40 miles per hour about he figured and up ahead of him about 150 feet he saw what was uh, he thought was uh, garbage or something like that and so he's put on the brakes and then he said, that's sleeping bags, he thought to himself, he said. And he locked the wheels. And when he locked the wheels, I'm assuming that the, uh, the horn went off. But at any rate, so we have a freight uh, train, an engine and 19 cars with the wheels locked. And as he's coming along so over to these sleeping bags, he said there was no movement as long as he looked. The engine and the 19 units went over them. It was impossible, no matter what, coming out of that curve that he could stop. Through, through your articles, it seems you got quite a bit of information on what the investigators found at the scene. Because mm -hmm. I guess it was a bit of mystery initially. So yeah. maybe why don't you describe what was found at the scene after the, the train went over, what initially they thought to be debris. Yes, that's right. And that's the word the engineer used. He said, I thought it was de just debris on the track at first. Um, so the, the Arista County Sheriff Department, they arrived. There's a Sheriff Daryl Crandall, and he has two deputy sheriffs with him. And they arrive, and what they see is three mangled bodies. And they don't know who, who these people are. There's no ID. Not one of them was carrying any ID. You know, they couldn't find any ID. What they, what they did find was uh, they knew they were Canadian right away because there's canned goods, cigarette packages, and Canadian money. Under $6 between the three of them, but there's Canadian money. So these are Canadians. And then one of the sleeping bags had a name and address stitched into it. That was Terry Burt's. And from there, they were able to track down who they were. But that morning, all they had when they found the bodies was one name on a sleeping bag. And they were working from there with the Canadian police to identify them, which they did by very quickly. They identified it to be these three boys yeah. that, that you knew. It seems as though the, we'll use air quotes for investigation, happened very fast in the law enforcement down there responding, had come up with a decision pretty quickly what happened. Can you tell me what, what you were able to figure out about 
their investigation and the findings of it? Yeah, it was it, it was an incredible thing, and it couldn't happen today because there was no investigation. Uh, 7 a.m. in the morning, the train went over the three bodies. That afternoon, the sheriff was telling everybody there was a tragic accident or something like that. So Saturday morning, it's in the papers. Train, freight train ran over three, uh, three sleeping bodies. Freight train killed three boys. It was automatically assumed right away from the sheriff that there was no foul play. Uh, immediately, there's no question of it, which is quite incredible because of all the many, many questions just from what you know was reported at the time. You could say, well, it, it just doesn't make sense. There should at least be an investigation. And this is the Aristotle County Sheriff's Department. This is just the local police. He worked for the... Sheriff Darrell Crandall worked for the railroad. He was just elected to this being sheriff. And uh, there's no state police involved. It's just the local police. They're not, you know, th that was a lot of strange thing right there. Mm -hmm. And they would have had to explain why the boys decided to camp on the train tracks. Mm -hmm. It just seems, especially in Cape Breton and Sydney, we have train tracks. You would, you'd be raised to know not to lay down on the train tracks. Sure. Did they ever offer any explanation as to why yeah. they, the boys would decide to camp out there? That was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting thing. He, in a way, there is no explanation. The sheriff would say, it really beats me why they would choose to, you know, sleep on the train tracks. And he always, you know, no matter what, why would three boys decide to sleep on the train track? And, you know, we are from Sydney. Back then, Sydney was a steel town with trains going all the time. Traffic was always being stopped by trains. You're sitting in cars or standing there watching the trains go by. We knew people who were injured by trains. We knew people who were killed by trains. And so the story was that three boys decided to sleep on a train track. Just an amazing, you know, hard to believe thing. So in the end, he said, well, we can only offer theories. We don't know why. And you don't, no investigation or anything. So no, you don't know why. You can see, like, oh, oh, it made me very angry. But the sheriff said, well, there was, we hear there was rain the day before. And, the, and there was a heavy shower, according to, um, to the news reports. So we're assuming that the boys were wet and very tired. And they got to the track and the, the ground... Uh, next to the track on either side was damp so they slept they decided well lie down on the track where it's assumed it's drier and he said they didn't wake up the next morning two hours and ten minutes after sunrise that's seven o'clock in the morning just before two minutes to seven before that train came you're two hours and ten minutes after sunrise they still haven't uh, awoken so um, he's going to assume that they put the sleeping bags over their heads to keep, you know, in case it rains again or something like that, to stay dry because it wasn't raining then. So it wasn't much of an explanation, really. Now, you make no secret through your through your writing that you have doubts about the official findings. What is it, uh, aside from the fact that how unusual it would be for them to sleep on the tracks, what is it that makes this seem odd to you? Or it makes it seem like there's more to the story. Yeah, I, well, it makes it definitely seems very odd. Three sober individuals, 15, 17, 20, from a steel town, decide to sleep on the train track for some reason. Then we have to assume that two hours and ten minutes after sunrise, when the train came, they were still sound asleep. That they had sleeping on the track for that you know long after sunrise. 
Then there is no movement. The engineer, very clear, all the reports, the sheriff himself, everybody knows that they did not see any movement. So that train is bearing down on them. The wheels locked, I'm sure the horn blown and no, blowing and no movement. And again, they decided to sleep, not only on the train track, but just, you know, 150 feet from a, from a curve on the track. Then three, not one of them has any ID. Terry Burt uh, drove a motorbike. Now, he wasn't a biker. He was kind of a quiet, gentle kind of person. But he, he drove a motorbike. He, he had ID, like he's 20 years old. Um, so three of them would be odd that not one of them would have ID. Mm -hmm. Less than $6 between the three of them. Now, they just arrived in the States. Did they come down with, you know, basically no money? That seems very strange. Another thing they mentioned, empty envelopes were at the site. And I was wondering, like... Well, at least that's a question. What were, what were these empty envelopes? Maybe you'd want to look into it. What was that about? So there were so many questions. And then for the sheriff to automatically rule out foul play and to have no investigation. And as far as I can make out, no state police or anything, just the local people uh, looking at it without an investigation. A very hasty local autopsy was carried out. But the, this is important too. The bodies, he got those bodies back to Cape Breton as quickly as possible. The accident, the, the train went over the bodies on Friday. Monday, the three bodies were back in Cape Breton. They're buried on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So that he had seemed to be in a hurry to end it as quickly as possible. Do you recall the initial reaction of, of your peers? Like, were you, when you heard it was a train accident, were you suspecting there to be more to this, or did you just accept the official explanation? Right. Well, that night we didn't really believe it. We were skeptical. We didn't think those things don't happen. It didn't happen to them. And we just thought it was some sort of sick rumor. But it was in the, the next morning we got up and we saw it in the Cape Breton Post on page three. Another thing that always made me angry, the press coverage, it was never on the front page. It was always on page three and the minimum coverage, five articles. But we saw it and very quickly people, among the young people, we were saying, we think they were killed. It doesn't make sense to us, you know, uh, all along. But it was very interesting how it happened. We, 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 I, I remember discussing it with a friend of mine and the adults saying, Look, you, you people are romanticizing. The sheriff said there was no foul play. And as soon as the final autopsy came in, I have uh, an article here, the, the, the coverage in the Cape Breton Post, the headline, foul play ruled out. There it is, black and white. It's in the paper. The sheriff said it. Why do you want to romanticize? And I remember feeling cowed at the time. And, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm being a romanticizing adolescent, you know. Mm -hmm. And we shut up. And that's another thing that always bothered me about it. We did nothing. Mm. Has anyone ever put forward theories as to what they believe may have happened? Like, were you ever presented with theories as to anything outside of the official explanation? And if so, what if, what if, what are the rumors? Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of rumors. Uh, again, the, the first assumption that was, was common was that the sheriff went down there he looked around. They had long hair. This is 1970. Some people, younger people, won't realize that at the time there's this idea of hippies. And hippies, 
you know, on the front page, Charles Manson was on, you know, murder. They were hippies. Uh, they were having orgies at Woodstock. They were, uh, they were traitors to the cause. There was a war going on in Vietnam and the American War, and people were protesting on the street, long-haired people. There was a hatred of hippies. And if you had long hair, you were a hippie. You know, you, it was just the fashion for us young people. But, you know, and, and it would be hard for young people to understand the prejudice against long hair, like, you know, at the time. So these are three boys. They all had long or longish hair. Some people felt at the time, the sheriff looked at that and they said, there's three hippies and they're not even our hippies, they're Canadian hippies. Ship them back, get them back there. Well, who knows what was going on, like we thought in his mind, you know, they were, was there a drug deal? Was there somebody kicked their, bikers kicked them around? Those were rumors that were going around, but he wanted not to waste any time on Canadian hippies. That's one possibility we always thought if that happened. And uh, I certainly don't think that there was a drug deal. I'd be very surprised, uh, you know, but that was a thought. Like you meet up with somebody who can get you a couple pounds of weed, you can sell it at a nice price back there. They, they ran into some bikers. I mean, there's another thing about how they crossed the border that's very mysterious. And the Border Patrol, were, uh, there, there was a rumor that the Border Patrol was looking for them. Now, my understanding is the Border Patrol said, we, we don't, nothing about it. You know, uh, we didn't know anything about it. But that's one thing I would like to look in, was the Border Patrol looking for them. There is that rumor going around. And where they were killed, there's a clearing right where they were on the interstate. The only place along that stretch where you could drive in is uh, at this location, because there's a little clearing there. And somebody showed it me on Google Maps. But I mean, again, you know, this is a rumor, because back then, what was it like? I'm going to look into that. But then you have the possibility that somebody was there waiting for them as they walked down the track. And or it could have been, you know, some people passing around a bottle, you know, or whatever. There's some hippies um, and things got out of control. All that speculation has been going on. And, and I want to see, you know, if I can find out, you know, something concrete as I, as I continue with these articles. Now, with this story, uh, I'm sure a lot of your peers and people who, you know, from Cape Breton at the time would know this story. But as time passed, it seemingly just for the most part had been forgotten. But now that you're telling the story through these articles again, I'm assuming people are coming out of the woodwork to talk to you. Like what what has kind of been the reaction from people hearing this story for the first time or for the first time in a long time? And are you hearing from people close to the story that are giving you new information? The reaction is when people who know the story and didn't know the story, yes, it's, you know, it comes back, it refreshes people, how outrageous the whole thing was that this could happen, that three people could be dying under such mysterious circumstances and no investigation, no questioning, so quickly forgotten. Everybody agrees with that. People tell me their memories, and you know, a lot of people just remember, like, you know, how much they liked, for example, uh, Terry, and how much they, you know, because I and Candy, both of the ones I know. So, and as they say, there's a lot of rumors, and, and uh, but, um, and you know, somebody gave me, you know, here's a couple names, you know, here's uh, somebody who who saw them that night and spoke to them at an ice cream parlor. Well, I'm going to try to track that person down. and uh a couple leads like that but i don't have anything concrete whatsoever i guess it's hard with the amount of time that's passed and given the fact that it didn't get major press attention 
so much of the record is word of mouth, so it it's makes your job harder. What is kind of the next piece of information you need to get that will allow you to take further steps in, in understanding and telling this story? Well, what I really, yes, I would really like to speak to some people who spoke with them once they crossed the border. That's the biggest thing. Uh, there wasn't a you know an investigation, so there might be uh, the sh you know deputy sheriff still around or somebody who's on the force. Anybody who has any contact with the situation or the story at the time or had heard something from that time or people who were there, that's what I'm looking for right now. Like Ken, I believe this story has much more to it than what was made public. I simply can't imagine a situation where I would decide to sleep on train tracks. But that said, I haven't seen or heard anything that makes me scream foul play. It's just that it all seems so very absurd. So I want to end this episode by requesting anyone with information about the people or the events described in this episode to share your story. If you have information proving foul play, contact police. But if you have general information, get in touch with Ken Jessam. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. His contact info is available in the show notes. And for anyone interested in reading Ken's great trilogy of articles about this case, I've added links to them as well in the show notes. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to end with some thanks. A big thank you to Ken Jessam for inviting me into his home and sharing this story with us. Ken, these three boys are fortunate to have you keeping their memory alive and questioning the circumstances that led to their deaths. A huge shout out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this episode. You can check out both of these great bands by following the links in the show notes. And now I'll end with the biggest thanks of all. I want to thank anyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my time creating this show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime or simply wants to support the creation of the show, please check out the patron group. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support me as well as access the supporter exclusive feed, which provides ad-free early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes no longer available on this main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Desi Gibson and oddly two anonymous people. I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a hand by telling your friends about the show and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities both on and off the show, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to provide feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.